This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. There is no better feeling than knowing your family always has access to clean, safe drinking water. The Cybertech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator is the answer to your peace of mind. The A10 generates clean, fresh drinking water out of humidity, creating up to 10 liters of drinking water each day. The A10 is environmentally friendly with a small footprint, a solar option for remote location, and eliminates bottled water. 36-month financing is available around $70 a month. Visit mywatersource.net. Use code PATRIOT, which in turn will help the We the People, Our American Story podcast reach more patriots. Cheers to clean drinking water and the Cybertech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story today. I am thrilled to have the guest that I have today. I met him down in Gunnison at the Gunnison Gut Check with an organization that if you have followed along on my podcast for any length of time, you know that I love, and that is OEW, Operation Enduring Warrior. Chris is an honoree with OEW and has been able to compete and stretch and push himself with this organization that has helped him a great deal. So I'm sure we will talk about OEW as well with his story. Chris, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much, Tina, for inviting me. You are welcome. I always like to start at the beginning. Can you please share with us about your childhood growing up, your family, and maybe if you had any family members that were in the military? Uh, I grew up in Southern California in a small little town called Asperia. It's just a little bit north of San Bernardino. Um, I lived an average life for a kid up there, but um, I did have family that was in the military. My grandpa and my grandmother served in the Navy. My aunt served in the Navy uh, for a short, short amount of time. And then my uncle served in the U.S. Army to the point where he was uh, retired and did over 20 years in the Army. Did you have siblings or do you have siblings, I should say? Yes, I have an older sister and a younger sister. Uh, my older sister lives in Washington. Uh, actually, both my sisters live in Washington now. And growing up, were you interested in the military at that time? Was that something that had crossed your mind? Um, in California, there's a couple of reasons that uh, you, you join the military. Either you're going to find yourself going down a bad road or you wanted to get out of the town. Um, when I was younger, I talked to my grandfather and I had told him that I wanted to join the military, continue on that military tradition. And I looked at, into my family's history to find out that everybody had been in the services for the Army, the Navy, Marines, but not the Air Force. And I told him that I really wanted to look into joining the Air Force when I was a younger kid. Yes. And so what was that path that led you to joining? Um, I... When I was in uh, high school, I joined an Air Force Junior ROTC program. It taught, taught me military traditions and, and structure and rank and uh, about military history. And I kind of wanted to continue following that. And um, I signed up for what they call the delayed enlistment program. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated high school at the age of 18 in 2001, in May, I was uh, signed up for the military to join and ship out uh, the second week of January of 2002. Uh, when I graduated high school, my grandfather's graduation gift to us 
was a trip to see my mother who I had not seen uh, from, from being a young childhood to a trip out to Pennsylvania. And uh, while we were there, my grandpa said, hey, while we're here in Pennsylvania, why don't we get a chance to go to New York City? And uh, as we we're on our way to New York City, this was on September 10th of 2001. No. Yes, ma'am. Um, we were crossing across the bridge, headed into Staten Island. And my grandpa said, hey, kids, look over there. And I still distinctly remember now both towers standing up. One had a red light on top and one had a green light. And the significance of those to keep planes so that they know where they are, where, where, that, where those buildings are. And uh, my grandpa said, hey, kids, tomorrow morning, we're going to have breakfast at the windows of the world. And I uh, didn't think anything about it. Had a family dinner that night. Got up the next morning on September 11th of 2001. And my grandpa is an Englishman, and they're always uh, prompt and on time. Well, this morning, he, that morning, he was a little slow getting up. Uh, we got on the, tr the subway, worked our way to the subway, and found ourselves to the harbor at the ferry. And as we were loading onto the ferry, we watched the first plane hit the World Trade Center. I had no idea about this part of your story. You're no, kidding. No, ma'am. No. Um, um, so I, we were on the ferry, watched the first plane hit, watched the second plane hit. Um, after the first plane hit, it looked like a, what to me looked like a movie scene, like pyrotechnics and everything. And then after seeing the second plane hit, we knew this wasn't right. Um, I got off the ferry, went back to my uncle's house and uh, uh, made phone calls that day. It took a little while because of the switchboard with everybody being busy and everything about six and a half hours later after the incident, uh, after what happened on September 11th, I was able to make a phone call to my dad, my mom, and my Air Force recruiter, and I wanted to prove whoever did this that what red, white, and blue really was. Um, so my recruiter said, okay, uh, I'm going to get you in as soon as possible. I got a call back a week and a half later, and I got told that my uh, enlistment date would be October 8th of 2001, and that's when I was shipped off to uh, Lackland Air Force Base to be in the Air Force, uh, literally almost uh, 30 days after September 11th. Wow, that day really shaped your life, didn't it? Yes, ma'am. I'm going to ask you, and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. You mentioned that you hadn't seen your mom since you were young. What? Yes, ma'am. What's that about? Uh, my mom grew uh, grew up in you know in California as well. Um, got connected to some pretty bad people and uh, went and did some jail time and some drugs and and it's since now turned her life completely around. But uh, during that time frame, when I was a kid, I did not see her very much, uh, very very sparingly in between two different prison uh, prison sentences for some decisions that she had made. And my grandpa kept the connection with us, so we would make phone calls once a month to her to keep the connection. But like directly seeing her, I didn't see her from the age of ten till the age I was eighteen. What impact does that have on you as a child where you can't see your mom or growing up in those teen years? It was hard. Um, my dad was a single father. So and at the time, it was just my older sister and I. So it was hard to, to see that. But we kind of focused our life on giving back to the community. And I've always done that since I was a kid. If it be from 5Ks, helping be a part of my dad's uh, hospital, 5Ks or Christmas pieces or something like that. We always just found a way to fill that that void that wasn't there. My dad was the best single father he could be with with all the circumstances that happened. You said, though, that your mom has turned her life around and you now have a good relationship with her? Yes, I do have a great relationship. My older sister and her actually live together now. So and uh, future future plans would be to move her out here in Florida with us so that she can be closer to my grand to her grandchildren, my children. I think that is fantastic because that just goes to show that everybody can change for the better. There is always hope. Yeah, everybody, everybody has a story. It just it, it and sometimes it's about the decisions that you make lead down to a bad road. 
And it's what you do with it instead of wallowing in it and being, this is what I'm going to be the rest of my life. It's taking those pieces, picking them up and, and moving forward to a better life. That is very admirable for your mom, but also for you and your sisters that you were able to forgive her and move on. Yes. Yes. That's great. Well, let's go back to the Air Force. Were you deployed then at any time? Okay. So the Air Force, I decided when I joined the military, they give you, it's called a dream sheet. And that's what it's for. You dream to go somewhere. And I put on there, I figured at this point, I had not got a chance to spend a whole lot of time with my mom, you know, with that small stint that I had right after graduation. I figured, okay, let me put anything on the East Coast the Air Force has from Dover, Delaware, all the way down to South Carolina, all the way up to the Eastern Seaboard. And the Air Force said, yeah, we're going to send you East. And I got a care package that said Speckens the Deutsch. And I got a care package too. I got a that's really East, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I got a care package to Ramstein Air Force Base, Germany, where uh, I fixed uh, Vietnam era C-130 models. So they're e e C-130E models, which are just slick airplanes for uh, car hauling cargo, people, or transportation of, of equipment is what we did. And uh, while I was stationed there, we um, kicked off Iraq. The official invasion into Iraq. Um, I was part of the first wave of C-130s that was flying over that actually dropped off the first uh, ID from the army from Grafenbeer, Germany into Talil, Iraq. Uh, while I was stationed there, did two additional deployments in, in support of Iraq and uh, a small stand in Afghanistan. And while I was there, the Air Force decided that um, our older C-130 models were breaking and to fix the part that needed to be fixed was over 100 man hours. And the Air Force said that doesn't make any financial sense. So they decommissioned all these C-130s and said, okay, well, when you decommission the airplanes, you also have an extra amount of people stationed somewhere where those planes aren't there anymore. And they said, well, we need to downsize. And I was like, okay, so I just got done doing my long tour for the Air Force. And they said, hey, you got your next choice of duty station. Where do you want to go? And I picked what I thought would be the Azores and was all happy and excited. And the Air Force said, nope, you're not qualified. So they picked for me and I got stationed at Osan Air Base, Korea. It was an interesting, I went from being in Germany to now I'm in, in Asia, <laughs> complete different understanding of what's going on. And uh, while I was there, within two months of being there, the tsunami happened, it, the, the big tsunami that happened in 2003, um, 2003, 2004. I can't remember the day off I had with my traumatic brain injury. But uh, when um, I was there, so I hadn't been not stationed at Korea long enough to actually started, started to get stationed, you know, in place. So they, uh, Ford deployed me to um, Thailand in support of the humanitarian aid that we did out there. Came back to Korea, finished my short tour in Korea, and they gave me my final duty station request. And I said, you know what? I want to go back to the state side. And I figured, okay, if I can't get with my mom, at least I can be with family. So I put in for McCord Air Force Base, where my uncle had retired from the Army from at Fort Lewis. And they said, yes, we're going to send you there. So that meant changing aircraft. So I went from C-130 qualified. Now I'm working on C-17s. And my... Uh, so I picked up my car from uh, Germany that they shipped out to California for me for, with my family. I picked it up and I drove all the way to Washington State. And uh, one Monday morning, I checked in. And as I got into the uh, flight chief's office, there was a line of people lined up at, at the flight chief's office. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just in-processing day. Maybe this is what it's about. And uh, as I was waiting in line, the flight chief walked out of the office and he said, hey, are you new here? And I said, yeah, I'm here to in-process. And he's like, oh, come on. So he pulled me into the office and we had a small conversation about what uh, McCord Air Force Base does and what the C-17 does. And he said, uh, welcome to, which is our major command. He said, welcome to AMC. That means another Miss Christmas. 
which uh, he's like, to us means we deploy so often that you will probably miss multiple Christmases. That is and so said, funny, okay. Chris. I have to stop that, you there because of all the people that I have spoken with, you are the first one that has mentioned AMC. <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that. I love that. Yeah, and that's our major command, which is a um, air mobility command is what it what it stands for, and that's exactly where we're mobility command. So called it upon any mission to do anything, um, globally or or um, nationwide. And uh, as we as we got there, they said, okay, well, I just want to let you know that we deploy here quite often. And right now, your choice is to either deploy in three months or deploy in six months. And he goes, I would highly recommend that you deploy in three months because you'll enjoy that location. Six months, you might not like that location. And I was like, all right, well, if you tell me three months is the way I'm going that's where i'm going sir so uh he signed me up well he opens up the door and says to the people in line hey guys the position's been filled and he closes the door and i said what and he goes oh all those people have been waiting in line for this great deployment that i just gave away to you <laughs> well that deployment ended up being the kuwait city international airport where um i caught c-17s and 747s and at that point i found out a different side of the air force which is for us to fly our casualty home, uh, angel flights and uh, honor flights home. While I was there, I carried 172 caskets in 120 days. Yeah. You were then on the plane bringing them home? You would you would escort yeah, them so, home or you so would just load them? Either, both of them. I've, I've got to the point where we would fly them back and forth, where we escorted them from one base to the next to, to make sure. So what it was is um, as I became a mechanic in the Air Force, I became what they call a flying mechanic. So the whole idea would be like, I can't fix the plane in flight, but wherever they would land, if I was qualified or, or had the parts, I would fix the plane on location so the mission could continue on. So there was a couple of times where I had to fly with the aircraft to inspect it. We had an issue where we flew into um, uh, Baghdad and had to do uh, an engine check and that kind of stuff to get the plane flying back. So there were, there were a few scenarios where I had to fly in, but most of the time we were the uh, transport. We would load them on the aircraft, give them their proper um, uh, ceremony and have them fly home. Can you share with us what that feeling is like when you are in a big plane that is full of flag draped coffins from brave men and women who have given their lives? What is that like? Um, sombering, it gives you a different sense of what the military is because you 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 know of war, you know, especially my career field. I, I I I was not in direct conflict, you know. I never picked up a weapon and fired back at being fired upon. And we were fired at, but never got a chance to be to fire back. And to see the other side of that, the casualties of war, um, reminds you of what you do on a day to day basis to protect that from being on our own home soil because it could easily be back here, what is going on over there. What happens after this then? Okay, so go back to, to, to uh, McCord Air Force Base and uh, get back to what I was doing and fly, become a flying mechanic, you know, fixing aircraft on a whole different level, flying around the, around the world with, with the C-17 back in and out of Afghanistan. Um, finished my last tour of Afghanistan. And uh, as we're getting ready to head back home, we're flying into a Ford operating base. And uh, we do what's called a combat corkscrew where the C-17 comes in for a very tight, tight landing. And the whole idea is to keep the enemy off, uh, off guard, you know, to catch them off guard so that we can fly in without, without any problem. Well, as we were doing our last pitch up to land, uh, a van on the side of the runway opens the door and fires a rocket pell grenade at our aircraft. Did you see it happen? And, uh, 
through the window. Yes, ma'am. We watch this within seconds because we're we're um when you're a flying mechanic, you are put on 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 spot check. I'm the at the top of my head, I can't remember what the position is called, but I'm gonna go ahead and call it it's a spot check. And uh, it's where you're in the window and you're given a plunger for uh, our countermeasures. And if you see something like this, the pilot calls out, you know, what side or what person to 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 assist. He has the ability to assist as well, but he has to focus on flying as well. So you have a position in which you are told to to fire a plunger, and the whole idea is when I push the plunger, it releases chaff and flare away from the aircraft to to throw off the armament that's being taken, you know, at us. And uh, so as as I see both this all on, on fire in flare, as it's coming towards the aircraft, you're watching it come towards the aircraft. All I hear the last words from my pilot was, and, and excuse my language, was kiss your ass goodbye. As this is and, happening, does it seem real? Are you panicked? Does it seem like a movie? What is that feeling? It, I would think it would just seem so um, surreal. Um, it is surreal. Adrenaline kicks in at that point. You don't know what to do. You don't know what's about to happen. I mean, you're watching it on, on, on you know, as, as it is like, it's happening so fast, but it seems like it's in slow motion to you. You know, you're responding what you're, what you're taught to do. Your training kicks in and all this other things. And, and you, and you, and you, and you fire it off and we were firing off chaff and flare, even though we were that far, we weren't very far off the ground. So like, you're watching this thing, like take off. And, and as the pilot, um, goes to pitch up to get away from the armament, it actually, uh, uh, the best word I'm going to say, it, it it pierces the aircraft. And that's what it comes down to. It pierces our outboard engine. And um, as the pilot's pulling up, we're thinking we're going to explode over this airfield. Um, at, and it doesn't. So you got that second of no explosion. Now what do you do? The pilots are are, are going through their checklist, trying to kill a motor so that, that it isn't getting fuel for the fire that's going on. Pitches the aircraft, pitches it down, puts the fire out. We, we call for an in-flight emergency. We land at a forward operating base. We get to the ground, land the aircraft at the end of the runway, and we're running away from this aircraft, me and the crew, as fast as possible. We're out the front door. Everybody's out the plane. We're running away from this aircraft. As we're turning around in a safe location, we're watching somebody walk towards the aircraft. And that's uh, explosive ordnance disposal goes out to the aircraft, gets up there with a the stand, removes the removes it from the aircraft, walks up to the aircraft, away from the aircraft, puts it in in a, in a safe bin, comes to us and says, "Hey guys, I want to let you know that you guys are the area is safe. You are clear." Um, luckily, the person that fired this aircraft did not again get a chance to arm this. So at this point, it was just a projectile, not an explosive uh, device that was shot at the aircraft. Does panic set in after the fact? Yes, all of us literally didn't know what to do. Like, I mean, we're, we're all out of breath. We're all like hugging each other because we're still alive. Like it was just, it was just like, like looking at each other, like you had seen your brother or sister because there was a female pilot with us in a different light. You know, in a, in a whole like you had you'd survive the worst worst thing in your life, and which it was, and you guys made it through, and you made it through all together, and it was like okay. And the Air Force required since uh, since the engines were still running that we just take back off and fly it fly it home is what it was like. So we, we flew home with three, three engines, one dead motor on the outside and uh, had me inspect it just to make sure it was nothing else that was leaking or anything beforehand. But we took off, flew home and uh, the Air Force said, instead of causing an in-flight emergency everywhere you landed, we're just going to have you fly home. We'll flight in-flight refuel you from here all the way from, from your forward armoring base back to McCord Air Force Base. So we did that. We never touched ground. I want to say it was almost a 38 and a half hour flight. Uh, very long you know we we figured out a way to to flop pilots and everything to get back where we were safely and uh came home um in flight ref in flight emergency into mccord air force base uh got down uh kissed the ground all of us did because we were home and thought okay you know this is this is it you know like we're back home this is going to be uh you know we're 
we're safe is what it came down to. So in the Air Force, we call what's uh, what's called a redeployment line. That's where you drop off your deployment gear and your active duty gear and you prepare for your next deployment. While you're there, you go through your medical records and updates. And at that point, it was a shot season for upgrade, up, updating our shots to make sure. And I was administered what's uh, the nasal spray, nasal spray flu vaccine. And uh, within 19 days of receiving this vaccine, I woke up paralyzed from the neck down. Wow. There is so much to unpack there, Chris. First of all, yeah. I have to say kudos to the Air Force, because I know that you are aware that the Air Force gets a lot of flack for being the cushiest out of all, yes, all of the Wait, branches. We're given the name... We're given the name Chair Force. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't heard that either. That because yes, what what you have told me does not sound too cushy. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. And and it's not something you prepare for. It's not something you train for. I mean, pilots are trained to 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 deal with in-flight fires and emergencies and that kind of stuff. But I promise you, this was not in a checklist. And our pilots, I, I commend them for what that what they went through and and what they did to to save all of our lives that day and, and the aircraft too. Not only, you know, not only, we could have we could have gotten away from the aircraft and, and it could have been destroyed or whatever, but they saved not only people but an Air Force asset as well. On the flip side of the coin, Chris, I have also heard that those who joined the Air Air Force are smarter. And that's why they joined that branch because they know it's a little in quotation marks cushier. So you are the smart ones. <laughs> I, I make the, the I make the the joke when people tell you like what did you why did you join the Air Force? And it's because I, I scored higher and I scored higher to make that decision. <laughs> you know what I think is so cool as part of your story, and I'm wondering if you can explain this, is the in-air refueling. Will you explain the yes, process for that? I think that is so cool. Okay. Yeah. So um, we have uh, aircraft that have the ability with fuel tanks that fly of us, KC-135s, KC-130s, uh, that have a chance uh, to in-flight refuel. So it's the weirdest experience because uh, you go from flying straight to now something's above you and watching the pilots control the aircraft and talk back and forth with the in-flight refueler because there's a certain part where you have to disconnect where it could take both planes down if you don't control the airspeed or, or turbulence and that kind of stuff. So they're talking back and forth with each other. But it's weird because it's like – flying into a fueling station but there's no ground there's no attendant outside and but there there's there's a, a fuel system and what's cool about the c-17 is it, it's above the window for the pilots so as you're flying you're flying closer and closer to to the, to the receptacle and it looks like it's going to go through the windshield but uh right above the the windscreen above the pilots is a beefed up um uh, plated area where it will scrape and you will hear it in flight scrape and but but it works its way into a receptacle but in the whole entire time you're flying, you know, you're looking at somebody looking at you while you're flying. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, you can see them in the window and they wave at you. And it's just the weirdest experience because you're looking at in flight. You're literally not on the ground. You're not like somebody who's over the top of the airplane giving you fuel. You're watching them in flight. And it's and it, it is a choreographed dance. The best I way was I can about say to that. say it's to... very complex. Many things could yes. go wrong. Correct. And, and, and there's times where we've had to disconnect quickly because turbulence or something was wrong or, or there was a problem with our plane and, and, and you just kind of have to figure that out. So they are in constant contact with each other. The moment happens to the moment ends, you know, and on the way out, it's like, you know, like they give you a thumbs up and they give you like a salute. And it's kind of this cool, like somber military moment of like, hey, you continue on as we continue on. And it's just a cool experience to be a part of. That's thrilling and petrifying all at the same time. Like as you're looking yes, at somebody's face in another airplane, you're going, this isn't right. I don't think we're supposed to be this close. 
No, exactly. Exactly. Especially at this height and everything else too, you know. How long does it take to refuel? It depends on how much you're taking on that it all, it, it can, it can decipher from, from a, you know, five to 10 minutes or even longer, depending on how much you're trying to take on. Well, those pilots definitely have ninja skills, so to speak. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yes, they do. <laughs> Let's go back to your uh, nasal spray. You said this was for the flu. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, okay. Ma'am. You get your nasal vaccination. And before you woke up paralyzed, were you feeling off at all? Did you notice anything with your body that was not feeling the way it should? Okay, so before the full paralysis kicked in the night, the day before, I didn't feel right. The best way to explain it is like um, having your computer go into what's called safe mode, where things are working, but it is really, really slow. Like the mouse moves slow, the screen moves slow. And that's what I felt like internally. It just couldn't, you know, my breathing was 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 slow. My movement was slow. So I was like, okay, let me go to, let me go to what's called, we have hours that we can go to the emergency room for sick call. And uh, I went there and sat there for almost four hours at, at, um, Madigan Army Hospital, which is at Fort Lewis. And I sat there and they finally had came inside and they had me uh, uh, administer a, a blood test and a urinalysis uh, just to see what was going on because I told them what, what I was feeling and they said, okay. So they came back and like um, the doctor told me, she's like, I want to let you know that you have a highly elevated white blood cell count. And I'd seen enough house on the TV to understand what that meant. <laughs> and, uh, and, as I, I was laying there, I was like, okay. And she's like, well, the only way for us to do a true test to find out what you're fighting for is called a, a lumbar puncture. Ooh, like, oh, those are okay. painful, right? Yes. And she comes back with these forms and explains to me the the severity of this, this procedure and the potential uh, side effects of this procedure. And I sign it because it's the military sign away, whatever it is at this point, you know? Can we stop like, for okay. just a second, so, Chris? You said you watched enough ahead. house to know what the high white blood cell count meant. So for those of yes, us who have yes, not ma'am. watched a lot of house, what does a high white blood cell count mean? Uh, it means you're fighting an infection. It's sh- okay. showing that your your white, se- white cell count is higher than it's supposed to be elevated to one point. But at this point, my I don't know what the number was. She had given it to me. It's been a while, but she had told me that the, the number was high enough that they were highly concerned for it. And they were going to find out what it is that my body was fighting off. If it be a virus, if it be something, you know, like I have to be an antibiotics for something, but it was elevated. Sign up for the procedure. Okay, so she gets one needle and puts it into my spinal cord and gets no fluid. Grabs a second needle, puts it in my spinal cord, and gets no fluid. Tells me, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get a third needle. On the time she put the third needle in, uh, when she put it in my spinal cord, uh, where, the, where they pull it from, the needle bent. What does that indicate? So so that's what they're trying to pull is in the back is spinal fluid. So right. when the lumbar puncture is pulled out, they pull that fluid out. And that's how they test to find out what your, what infection that you're fighting. So was there no fluid there? And was that indicating something? So it was indicating something actually by the third needle when she put it in indicated that my spinal cord was swollen and that's why she was not able to actually penetrate to get the needle in an area that wasn't soft tissue enough to pull the fluid out and uh so she tells me she goes okay um we're gonna send you home with composine and i was like okay she says we're you're dealing with a bad nat na- uh, bad amount of nausea and we're going to give you this medication and we're scheduling you tomorrow for an MRI. I thought, okay, you know, this is the military way. This is how it's done. Whatever. Went home, um, barely made it up to my, to my, to where I was living at the time. It was just a, really odd. 
And I was like, okay, so let me figure out what's going on. So I uh, laid in bed, took the medicine, went to sleep, woke up the next morning. I had an 11 o'clock appointment, I think it was, for an MRI. I thought everything was fine. Um, I was married at the time and I uh, was laying in bed. And when I rolled out of bed, the best way of explaining it is I, I rolled out of bed, thought I was perfectly fine. My legs came with me, but the moment that I stepped on the floor, I collapsed and I couldn't move my lower body. And I didn't know what that meant. So I army crawled my way into the living room. And I guess in the process, I uh, was told that I, uh, I had a seizure and my body shut down. And my ex-wife now found me laying on my uh, living room floor. She called an ambulance and I thought, okay, well, like, don't call an ambulance. We'll get in a car. We'll go to the emergency room by myself. That's that military stubbornness kicking in. So I army crawled myself all the way to the, to the garage. And uh, in my, in, in my thought process at this point, I thought, okay, Hey, the best way, if I can't pull my own leg up to pull myself up is to lock the back seat seat belt. The inertia reel will lock and I can use it as a handheld to pull myself in the car and we can go to the emergency room. Well, in the process of trying to lift myself, I collapsed even more on there. And the thing I remember coming to was the uh, EMTs putting the car in neutral and pushing the car out of the way so they could put me on a backboard to put me in the ambulance. <laughs> yeah, military stubbornness kicks in at the worst time possible. <laughs> when you woke up that morning, did you feel any different with your legs? Anything like that? I mean, usually, you know, you might stretch no. a little bit or. Right, right. And, and that was the thing about it is I rolled my legs over and to me, it didn't seem anything different than anything else. But what was weird is it felt like my legs were tingling, like you had slept on them wrong and they were like, you, I, what's the, I can't even think of the word now, but um, like almost like a dead leg. I guess that's the word. I, there's a name for right. it. I can't, uh, um, and, and that's what I felt like, but I felt it in both legs. It was just a tingling feeling. But the moment I went to put pressure on, they just collapsed from underneath me. I didn't have the ability to move them at all is what I came down to. Um, and I remember the EMTs talking to my ex-wife and they said, um, there, uh, we're going to take him to, oh, he's military. I see. And we're going to take him to Madigan. And she said, no, we went there yesterday and they sent him home in this condition. So they're all right, well, we're going to go to, to, to a, to a local hospital instead. And I was like, that's fine. So they put me in there and transported me to Tacoma general hospital in Tacoma, Washington. And, uh, within a few minutes of being in, administered, I was immediately put in the ICU. And this point of the story is all told for me from my family's perspective because I was put in a medically induced coma. So they had found out that the virus was attacking my spinal cord and at a rate that they couldn't slow it down. And the rate it was going, I was going to die really quickly. So they wanted to stop the progression by slowing down my body's function so that it didn't continue on to fastly progress and to the point where they couldn't control it. Um, they, they found that out by doing an MRI and uh, I, I was told that they, I did three days of MRIs and they watched the spinal, watch my spinal cord get eaten away by this virus that was getting into my spinal cord and eventually created 42 lesions on my brain. I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, it does. It, it, it leads to a lot of questions. It does, ma'am. I, I 100% understand that statement. How many days were you in a coma? Okay. That total days ended up being 33. No way. And I didn't know that. And this is how it came to me. How I got that answer was when I came to, I woke up inside of an ambulance with a, with a tracheotomy into my throat. And I was able to gasp enough to ask, where are we? 
and I got told we're being transported from one hospital to the next, and you've been in a medically induced coma for 33 days. So this was November 18th was the day I was put in a coma, and December 23rd of 2008 is when I was in the was in the ambulance when I came to to find out that I had been in in a, in a in coma for 33 days. I can't even imagine the confusion you must have ex- been experiencing at that time. I have to ask. I had yes. um, a friend of mine. He's a friend. He's I call him a friend now, Shiloh Harris. And he's been on my podcast a few times. Shiloh was um, in an IED explosion and burned all over his body. And he was put in a coma, I think, I want to say like two months, but I can't remember for sure. But I'm wondering if you remember anything while you were in your coma, because Shiloh has told me that it was the most terrifying time of his life, that he could hear people, that he had nightmares, Mm -hmm. and that when he came out Mm -hmm. and it was time to go to sleep, he did not want to go to sleep because he was terrified of being in that state again. Other people I have asked that were in a medically induced coma, they have not experienced that. What was your time like in the coma? Do you remember anything? The only thing I remember during my coma experience was when they would take me to the MRI it was like a roller coaster ride because the doors would swing open. Like you've ever been on the, the kitty road coaster rides over at um, the fair. And as you go through the door, the, the cart hits the door and it opens up or like the same doors that you would see at um, uh, uh, like Home Depot when you go to the garden section where they're closed enough. But when something hits it, they open up. I remember going through doors like that. And then I remember being in a bed and then I remember the clicking noise of an M- MRI machine. That click, 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 click. I remember that. But to me, it just felt like a roller coaster ride all the time. But the one thing that did come to me that I remember this so, so much, and I thought it was a nightmare ride. But every time I would get done at the end of the ride, there would be a huge smiley face, yellow smiley face smiling at me. Yeah. And, and I'll get to the answer. This was quite, quite crazy to find out this, this smiley face was a balloon that was given to me that my aunt gave me and it was blown up. And eventually over time had lost all the air. So they had stapled it to the wall in front of me. So when I came to an end of this MRI ride, which would bring me back, they brought me back to the same room. And that's what was like, I don't know if it was something that I had like been able to see or feel, but it was the weirdest thing because it wasn't like I could see it, like I could touch it, but it was something that was there. And I don't know if it was something that I had seen before they put me in the medically induced coma or if it was something, but it was literally when I came to in the emergency in, in which in the uh, rehab hospital, it was stapled to the wall in front of me. And I don't know what it was, but, it, but the, the feeling of those doors going through, you could hear it. And I don't know if it was the fact that I could hear it or feel it or something, but that's all I remember of the whole entire experience of when I was in a medically induced coma. I remember voices. I remember people talking. Um, I remember the vibration of the bed because I got a, um, a um, what's the word, uh, a pneumo- pneumonia while I was there, hospital pneumonia. And they had to put you in one of those vibrating beds. And I remember it being like the kid when I was in the 80s, we used to put a quarter in the bed and the bed would vibrate. I don't know why they do that in hotels, but that's why they had it. <laughs> And that's what I felt like. I was like going back to being a kid, but I couldn't run and jump on it like I was a kid. I was just laying there and it was just vibrating. Do you ever remember trying to reach out or try to talk and couldn't? Um, not directly. I, I, um, I, was, I had a tracheotomy and I guess during that time frame, I would bite at it. Um, so I had a, I had a throat 
a throat tube and I guess I would bite at it. And that's why they had to eventually put a tracheotomy because I would violently bite at the tube because it was there. And they put a tracheotomy to stop me from doing that, which stopped me from having the ability to speak and, you know, like breathe on my own. And um, so when I came to at the uh, rehab hospital, um, the irony of this was my doctor rolled into the room in a wheelchair. Uh, he was a paraplegic himself. And his first words to me, as they were standing around with three other doctors said, um, you, Chris, you're never going to be able to breathe, eat, walk or do anything you're on your own again. And this is two days before Christmas of 2008. And all I could see at that point was I had now what I know is a pick line uh, to my heart. And I immediately from those words was a very huge pill to swallow. I'm 25 years old. I I mean, the day before, the day before my, I felt the onset of my paralysis from, from going to hospital, I ran two and a half miles. Like I worked out. So like going from what I thought was who I was going to be to now I'm this vegetable for the rest of my life. I thought if I could just reach down with my teeth and rip this pick line out, I would bleed all over the place. And this would be the end of my life. I'm not going to be a burden to someone, especially like in this state. I was going to ask, what does that do to you? Because I think most people... Yeah, they would just like fine, just end it here. Then I don't, I don't want to keep going like this. Wow, that is a huge pill to swallow. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, and and I didn't know what to do with this, you know, because you're paralyzed. I can't be like, well, you know, I'm leaving. I'm getting up. I'm going to take my me and my my family. We're going to leave. Like I couldn't physically do anything. I mean, I'm hearing every three seconds that the machine pick up the air and push it through my throat. Like, you know, like you, you, you hear all the things you see on, on house and now I'm living around it, the beeping noises and, and the doctors and everything else. And, and I, I didn't know what to do. I literally, I, I sat there and questioned it every single day. Like, what am I, who am I, what am, what am I, you know, what, what does this mean for me for the rest of my life? And all I kept thinking was I'm going to be a burden. Somebody's going to have to pick me up. Somebody's going to have to feed me. Somebody has to carry me. Somebody has to take me to and from places, or I'm just going to stay isolated in a house for the rest of my life. Are you in pain at this point at all? Um, I deal. So I deal with spasticity a little bit in my, in my right leg from this. So the, the misconnection from my brain to um, my body, um, what happened is the 42 lesions on my brain wreaked havoc um, while I was in the hospital. What stopped the onset of the paralysis was uh, uh, plasmapheresis. So that was the last procedure I received before I uh, was removed from uh, Tacoma General. And that's where they take your plasma and they spin it or put artificial plasma in it or try to clean your own. Uh, within 72 hours of three three doses of um, plasmapheresis, all 42 lesions had disappeared from my brain. When they leave, they wreak havoc. <laughs> if this had not been treated, would you have been a quadriplegic? Would it just eventually have killed you? What would have been the result? The prognosis was that this would have killed me because it was shutting down my body. And what did they tell you happened? What was this caused from? Do you have any idea? So they told me I was diagnosed with acute disseminated encephalitis, And that took a while for me to figure out how to say that. So the acronym is, uh, the acronym is ADEM. And they explained to me that this happens in children more than it happens into adults. And what happens is it's a reaction to a vaccine. And instead of getting you sick, it eats away your um, spinal cord tissue. It's called your myelin sheath. And it's what covers the nerves to all of your body, which gives you function from breathing all the way to moving your leg or, or even like closing your eyes. And uh, in most cases, when this myelin sheath is taken away, there's a defense between that. It's like calcium and some other, other materials before that. But it will eventually kill the nerve. 
And when the nerve dies, that means that function completely disappears and never comes back. Had you had any type of reactions before to vaccines, anything like that? No, ma'am. Um, this was actually my eighth time. So I've been in the military almost eight years at this point when I received this, or no, seven years uh, when I received this vaccine. So I had six six other times in the military giving me the nasal spray, year in, year out, had not had a reaction. Um, I attribute it to the um, a compromised immune system from being in, in country. Um, in the Air Force, we it's not documented this, but the Air Force, we, we work 12-hour days, 14 to 16-hour shifts sometimes, because that's what the mission requires. And I honestly just attribute it to my immune system being compromised and then being administered this vaccine. It was just the luck of the draw, so to speak. Yes and no. I mean, you, we can play like that game, like, it, you know, if, had I done this, had I done that. I think honestly that this vaccine um, from being involved with other people, um, these vaccines have actually had an effect on other people besides me. Um, to a certain extent, some of them, uh, I have a friend that um, had a reaction as well, and he's partially blind because it took part of that part of that vaccine attacked a different part of his body. So, I mean, we can, it's, it's speculation for, for better, for better terms when it comes down to that, like um, vaccines do have a purpose. Some of them do, some of them don't, you know, and, and this one here is a guess every year of what strain will be effective and all that stuff. And the CDC comes out every year to tell you that, I mean, it was effective to a certain amount, like that's kind of fine, but at the time, like it's not effective in a way, the mass that would be accepted for better terms. Wow. Chris, you have a phenomenal story. Can I just say that? <laughs> yes, ma'am. And, and and that's the thing about this is I tra tell my story to reach out to uh, other veterans because I know they're out there. Um, we deal with a lot of injuries that are combat related. And I think that's the focus. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we went over the country, we fought for our country and we got injured in country. And, and I have combat, combat uh, injuries as well from PTSD and other things that I experienced. But my onset injury that paralyzed me was not from direct combat actions. And my story allows other people to understand that it doesn't have to be just combat injured for us to, to, to have a need in the middle out, out when we get out, you know, and, and understand that there are programs out there for veterans to reach out to that aren't just combat related, you know, like we get injured. A lot of our veterans get injured in, in training, you know, before you even deploy or, you know, a freak accident on their way to work, you know, somebody plows into them and now they're paralyzed or, or, you know, or even their, even their injuries from combat lead to an injury. And a lot of that's understanding that there are programs out there that will help you through, through some of the issues that, I mean, the government does its best it can. I can tell you that, you know, they're doing their best it can, but the only way, the only way that a veteran helps a veteran is another veteran and, and veteran organizations understand that, that we help each other through whatever it is that's going on. And a veteran's going to open up to another veteran in whatever it is. But at the same time, there are people out there that get injured from other, other, other fields of injury, you know, other, other fields that aren't military. And I just want to let them know that there are programs out there to help. You said that you deal with PTSD. Where does that come from? Uh, from my experience of the dealing with the combat, uh, the casualties of war, um, seeing a brother get on an airplane whose brother is next to him in a casket and trying to get them home to their family because of the, um, the expectation that when you see that side of it, it changes you. Um, not only while I was in the military, we dealt with uh, casualties. We also dealt with um, uh, medevacs. So 
going from from seeing a black puff cloud on the ground to now you're landing in that black puff cloud you find out was a helicopter crash and now you're what we consider a slick airplane to now i need to change the aircraft for uh in-flight emergency or in-flight medevac and go to find out that now we need to set up the location to be uh in-flight surgeries Uh, we had medic medics on board that uh brought people back to life Uh, we've had people die on the airplane while while we were flying We've had limb salvage and limb amputation, limb amp- amputations and that kind of stuff. And, and fight or flight, you know, you got that point. We flew with an iron lung on the aircraft to keep people alive. And when you see that, um, it really changes you as a person. Um, you know, there's a lot of people deal with combat injuries from direct, you know, direct fire. But at the same time, um, my PTSD stems from seeing the casualties of war and trying to save one's life while flying completely changes you as a person. How does your PTSD manifest itself? Do you know that it's coming on and what are you experiencing? Um, A lot of the times I did not know that I had specific triggers that focused on that. Um, Avoiding flight lines was a big thing for me. Um, Seeing airplanes was a big thing and they're all over the place. And seeing especially specific aircraft, um, a smell, you know, like you would, you, a lot of our times we would land at at a place and a helicopter would drop off the, the, the uh, patients and they would transport that uh, patient from the helicopter right next to us to onto our aircraft, wherever it is that they got injured. And then we would take off and fly them into Launchstool or, or Walter Reed as their final destination, or ultimately, sadly to Arlington where, where they would be buried for, for their sacrifice. You're told you're not going to walk, you're not going to eat, you're not going to breathe on your own, but that is not the case. So how did we go from that to where you are now? Um, So laying in a hospital bed every single day, they would do what's called range of motion, uh, moving my muscles so that they could see contraction and all this other stuff and kinetic tests and all this stuff. And while I was there, they would did um, electrical stimulation trying to fire off the muscles for me, get the nerves firing. Um, After laying in a hospital bed for a specific amount of time, I just kept yelling at myself internally to do something. Do something more, do something more. This is not supposed to be for the rest of your life. And when you're in that case, they have to make sure like, they can't send you home on a ventilator. They can't send you home on this. So you have to be medically stable in order for them to release you. So that takes time, that takes control, that takes, you know, determination that takes the body healing it takes all this so um, I'm laying in a hospital bed and just yelling at myself internally and one morning I yelled at myself do something more be something more and my left hand lifted a quarter inch off the bed and I thought well if I can do that I can do more and that's exactly what drove me every single day I would push and push and push and push to do more and a quarter of inch turned into an inch and an inch turned into you know three inches, four inches to the point where I was able to lift my hand off the bed and start gaining control of my hand. And every single day I would just do more and more and push myself and, and the therapist there would help me push more and more. And I got to the point where um, at that point now, obviously something is, is, is sleep and dormant and now it's coming back to life. And that leads to more pain than I ever thought was possible. Um, so when I started to have progression in the right direction, I had regression in the wrong for pain management. And we went through everything under the sun from Dilaudid all the way up to morphine and it wasn't killing it for me. And a doctor came to me and he goes, I need you to sign some paperwork. And I said, okay, he goes, I'm an administrator, administrator drug to you that we normally use to get people off heroin. And I said, okay. And he says, methadone. And I was like, what? And he said, yep. 
I'm going to give this to you. I think this is the last thing that's possible right now for us to give you that will control you. He, I signed it. He gave me my first dosage, and I fell asleep for 14 and a half hours. The pain went away. I had no no more nerve conductive pain from that. And the next morning or the next day after waking up, um, I had an, I found a newfound energy. I found that I could push through the, the, the small amount of pain that I was feeling was from muscle, muscle fatigue and, and all that, not the nerves firing. And I was like, okay, so we went through and I was able to, to, to get this small medication every morning, very small dosage. That was the cool part about it. It wasn't a massive amount of dosage to get the pain to go away. Um, took a small amount in the morning and then they would take me off to physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy. And, and eventually they took the tracheotomy out. I was able to get that closed. I was able to start to speak on my own, um, eventually able to start contracting my left, my right, my left hand on my own and uh, did not start to see a whole lot of progress in my right side. Just nothing, no movement, no nothing. So just dead weight on my right side and, and didn't know what was going on. And the therapist says, well, we have something that works about 50% of the time. And I said, okay, I'm willing to try anything at this point. And uh, they put my arm in a box and it's a mirror image of your left side to your right side. And they can switch the mirror, which side, whatever side they're wanting to connect. And uh, they had me move my left hand inside this box. And I looked down at the box and they would have you stare at the box and they would have you move your left hand. And it would look like it was your right hand moving. And every single day I would do the same thing about four, maybe about a week into the, to, to this I pulled my right hand out of the, out of the box and I started to squeeze my right hand. Is this just to trick your brain? And yes, ma'am. It's to reconnect the lost connection between your body. And it's the weirdest. I would have told you it had, when you, when the lady, when the therapist first showed, told me, I told her it was witchery and that she was on crack and that this would never work. And like, it sounds like snake oil, that, doesn't it? It, do, it does. It sounds like this is total, this is bahooey. Like you're, you're, you're a, you're a witch doctor. Like everything about this makes no sense to me. And uh, after pulling it out after a week, I pulled my right hand out and I was able to open and close my right hand. So they started doing a more electrical therapy on my right hand to gain the strength in it and control. And, and uh, eventually I was uh, released from the hospital about two and a half years uh, with my upper mobility to, to push myself in my own wheelchair. And uh, from there, I just started doing more and more therapy, uh, outside therapy. Well, while I was uh, in therapy, the Air Force, um, I was still active duty at the time. So the Air Force said, okay, well, in order for us to medically retire you, you have to be medically stable, which means you're not in a hospital for any amount of time for one solid year. Because if they, they kill you from, if they pull you from medical, you could regress and it could be way worse. So the Air Force just says, okay, one year from, from no hospital visits when the clock starts. I was like, okay. So started going to occupational therapy, out, outpatient therapy, uh, pool therapy, and, you know, learning to do more with my arms, putting the, the uh, firing it off of my legs and, and, you know, getting the stem, e-stem on my legs, trying to get some movement and that kind of stuff. And the Air Force came back and said, okay, well, you've uh, medically been stable. So we're going to submit paperwork for your medical retirement. Um, sadly, the day I received medical retirement orders, I received divorce paperwork. Did you see that coming at all? Not directly. I know that my injury had caused an impact on our relationship, but not enough that I thought that if my military career ended, so would my marriage. Did that regress your progress? It, I, I wouldn't say regress, but almost ended my life. Um, um, Did you I try to take your at life? This point, yes, ma'am. Um, I thought that I, if I'm not a military person, I'm not a husband. Who am I? There's no reason for me to live. 
and uh, I picked up a weapon and 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 was about to pull the trigger when my phone rang, and it was a buddy I just met a couple weeks prior, and he said, "Hey, um, there's this organization that wants to take us skiing. I'll be at your house in 15 minutes. You're going to stay at my house, and we're going to go skiing tomorrow morning." And I put the weapon down, and he came to my house, and I went skiing the next morning. I learned uh, what adaptive skiing was. And literally, no joke, they put me in a monoski and we bombed the mountain straight down at 60 miles an hour with snow hitting me in the face and uh, a new light in me lit off that I didn't think that I would be able to do in, in life was possible. How do you feel when you look back and see how close you came to taking your own life? Uh, it scares me, especially now knowing what, what my life is now and what it could have been. And that's the thing about that, where it would have ended to now what is going on in my life. I'm glad that I didn't because it's not been, it's not been an easy road. Let's, you know, with, without trying to lie to somebody like, Oh, it's an easy road after this. No, it's not. It takes a lot of hard drive and determination, but what my led my life has now and what I have in my life, I'm so much happier now than I was then. What function do you have in your legs? Uh, I'm now able to walk and stand with forearm crutches. Uh, very short distances, and I'm looking at getting into the VA's uh, electrical or um, exoskeleton program to be able to walk more. You've been through a lot. You were injured. Do you regret joining the Air Force? No, ma'am. I actually tell people if they gave me the opportune chance to go back in again, I would, even knowing what I know now, because I know that what I did had an impact to stop what was going on over there to happening right now here in front of us every day. What did the military teach you? Um, honor. And that what we do has a bigger impact, even though you may not be able to see it directly. I mean, each, each person in the military has a specific position. I mean, like in my case, like, um, I fixed aircraft, so that's my direct connection to the Air Force. Like people think, oh, like, like there's finance, and people are like, there's no reason for finance in the Air Force. There is, I mean, and, but each person has a piece that makes a bigger piece, a bigger piece of the pie, and an understanding that what you do makes a big difference. And without you, we wouldn't be able to do what we do over here every single day. You know, I got stopped a couple, maybe about a year and a half ago or two years ago, and people were protesting. And we were just in an area where they were protesting. And one of the people who was a civilian came to me and was like, doesn't that upset you? And I said, no, I fought for the right to do that. It's when they take that extreme and start beating up buildings or people, that's what upsets me the most. So having the right to be an American, to, to, to fight for this country, but having the right to be able to protest what you're not happy about is what I fought for. And seeing that, and they kind of looked at me like, like, like I had just told them that, that they're, that what they said was wrong, you know, and they kind of looked at me at a different perspective. It's like, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I thought you would honestly be, and he said, he told me, I thought you were honestly going to be upset and, and tell them what kind of horrible people they are. I'm like, no, they're not horrible people. That's, that's the right of an American. You have the right to step up. You have the right to fight for, for what, what you're not happy for. How did you come across OEW? And I see you're representing today in your shirt. OEW yes, or Operation Enduring Warrior. How did you come to meet them? Okay. So my first interaction with, with them was on a Spartan course. And I watched four guys run past me with one girl, one guy in the middle of them. And one of the guys was uh, in a mask, had a single arm and a cool individual. 
and uh, I went to go climb over one of the walls, and I got a, a, a Spartan hello, which is where they grab you by the butt, the butt and push you over the wall. And uh, that was my first interaction to an organization that wears gas masks and runs crazy across a, 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 an obstacle course. Um, I got in, I got introduced to the person behind the mask, and we became good friends, and we talked about things. His name is Johnny Lopez, and I uh, got a chance to hang out with him a few times at events, but not perspective with OEW. Um, and uh, I signed up for what's called the Red Bull 400, which is in Park City, Utah, and I trained for it, and I thought, okay, well, the whole idea is to c- climb the uh, Nordic ski jump. So where they land, you actually go the opposite direction. You climb your way up instead of down. And I thought, okay, cool. I'll, I'll prepare for this. Got, got all prepared, prepared with my wife, um, get to the hotel. And the night before my climb, my wife says, congratulations, I'm pregnant with our third child. And I was like, well, okay, well, what we trained for, I'm going to do on my own. We'll be able to make this through. Um, had another buddy come help me go to find out he broke his foot. And I didn't know this. And my wife said, Hey, he's going to be a little limpy, but we're going to work our way through this. All right, cool. We're going to conquer this mountain. Um, I got, started the race climbed up as far I got to the about the 140 150 meter mark and I experienced what's called altitude sickness my right leg completely locked out to the point where I couldn't move it at all I was gasping for air I didn't know what was going on with my body well my wife and and a friend were like we don't know what to do well they carried me off the course so I didn't impede the the next running wave that went through um, I made a phone I made a text message to uh, uh, to Johnny Lopez and it stated with this because I was trying to send a picture with it. It stated with this, this is not where it ends for me, is what the message said. And trying to load up at that altitude and, and that where we're at out in Park City, Utah, there was a picture with it. And it was the 150 meter mark at the Red Bull 400. Well, that picture never made it through. And a phone call ensued by Johnny Lopez. And it was like, no, this isn't where it ends for you. He thought that I was taking my life that day. And it was just a representation to me that I was not going to let this be the end of my story. Like this is the Red Bull 400 conquered me. And so we had a long conversation about what was going on and what happened. I was like, no, I want to conquer this mountain. And OEW, and he told me, he goes, next year we will sign you up and you'll be an honoree and we will take, we will knock this course out. I was like, okay. I didn't think anything about it. So I got a hold of OAW a couple weeks later. We got a training plan together where I train and uh, no joke. Um, I live in a small town in Texas at the time. And the whole idea was for me to uh, use the treadmill. I got on my hands and knees and put my knees on the ground. And I used my arms at 0.2 miles per hour on, on the scale up there and use my arms to pull the uh, treadmill um, uh, conveyor belt with my arms. And I said, okay, how long you want me to train for this? And they said one mile. And I thought, cool. He's like, well, 100, 100, 140 or, or uh, Red Bull for 400 meters. You'll get to 400 meters. A mile be perfect. We'll be good. So I trained and, and, and started taking on different supplements to help with altitude sickness. And I arrived in Park City, Utah of, of, um, in 2019. And as I got there, I got introduced to four individuals that were in camo. And then 10 minutes later, all four individuals were in a gas mask. And we climbed the Red Bull 400. Um, we're climbing up the Red Bull 400. And I got to the 350 meter mark where I could see the finish line. And I am gassed. I am exhausted. I'm at this point. And one, from underneath one of the masks, all I hear is, whew, we hit a mile. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, from the beginning of this race to where we are now, we hit a mile. And I was like, uh, that's why I'm toast. I only trained up to this point. And from underneath the gas mask, I heard from one of the individuals, he said to me, and these words still radiate so much in my life, not only for me, but also my kids. The only way to eat this elephant is one bite at a time. 
And uh, we became what, in my opinion, like watching the movie Ben-Hur, when they start calling out cadence for each one of those rows as they're going in. Uh, we would work one arm at a time, one leg, at, one arm at a time, one arm at a time, one leg at a time, one leg at a time for the last 50 meters. And when I got to, we climbed up the final finish line and I threw myself over the wall and laid on the mat. And at that point, I conquered the Red Bull 400. It took me two hours and 25 minutes from the very top to the very bottom. But I climbed on my hands and knees as a team. We conquered it. And my daughter was at the top of that uh, finish line and she gave me my medal when we finished that Red Bull 400. What does it mean for you to com- to compete in these events? Uh, it was amazing. I never thought that something that I, I mean, obviously you train for things and you, you see an outcome for it. I never thought that this outcome would actually spark a lot more in me than I ever thought possible until we were actually going to go da- back down. And I wanted to go down on the uh, bobsled, which is a tube, tube, tube down what I just climbed. And OEW was like, I don't think that's safe, which I agree with him. I think that if I don't have full function of my body going down in a tube doesn't sound ideal. Well, they're like, hey, the other way down is we grab a van, we drive it up to the top and drive it down. I was like, that doesn't sound any fun. They're like, well, there is the uh, ski lift that you can go down. I was like, oh, perfect. So I figured, well, we'll just go down the ski lift. Uh, So they took my chair, my wheelchair with me, put it on one, put the one in front of me. And then I climbed on onto the to the. um, uh, ski lift with them and I had a conversation with one of the uh, OCAs the um, again, the community community ambassadors mm-hmm. and I was like okay and I said uh, I said uh, he goes uh, what, what's next for you and I was like well um, I would love to do the I would like to trifecta next year is what I said I would love to trifecta next year in the Spartan and he goes looks at the looks at the calendar I want to say it was June or July and he said um no, we're going to, uh, no, actually, no correction. It was June because my son was born in May. It was only a few weeks old when we did the Rebel 400. And he looked down and he goes, it's only June. We can do it this year. And I was like, what? He goes, we will trifecta this year. So here I am. We go back home. We sign up. And I sign back up for the Spartan in Ogden, Utah. <laughs> You've been to Utah a lot. Yes. So here I am. I got done. We signed up for a sprint and a super in one weekend. And I got done with that race and he goes, okay, the last race for you will be the beast. And we will knock it out in Dallas in October of 2019. I got to do the Red Bull 400 on one week, one weekend. We uh, did the switch back up there in Ogden, Utah. Um, 1.7 miles turned into almost one point, uh, almost 1700 feet elevation change in that amount, amount of time. Yeah, we were gassed, um, got done, came home, prepared for the, the beast, knocked out the beast. And I tried affected in Spartan in 2019. Well, you and I both know some of these men behind the gas mask. And for those of you who don't know, they wear these gas masks because they want the attention to be to the honorees like Chris. They don't want to bring the attention to themselves. So they are there as faceless people just to support and help the men and women like Chris who are going through this course, this event, this race. They are there as a faceless person. What has it meant for you to build a friendship with these people? What I love about that is not only have I have a friendship with him behind the mask, I have a friendship without the mask. And I think the biggest thing is created a brotherhood and a sisterhood that I thought that I lost. 
it maybe gave me back the camaraderie that I thought that, you know, when you're in the military, you know that the person next to you, if you're on the battlefield or even at work, would pick up a weapon and fire back if, if you were if you were to fall in, you know, or, or support you in every, any means possible. And that's what's cool is they give you back that feeling. But the biggest thing I love about their gas mask, and I don't think a lot of people take this in consideration, especially when you, when you speak about that, it gives them a disability that they're on the course that they have to overcome at the same time and they can't take it off. They don't take the gas mask off to eat. They don't take the gas mask off to, to, to drink. They drink through a tube. But what it does, is it levels the playing field, not only for, for the, for the honoree, but also the person in, 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 in the mask, because now you have a disability that you can't shut off. And, and the only way through it is to use that disability to push through your limitations and push through the, the suck of life and finish whatever it is. If it be, if it be an obstacle course race, if it be climbing Mount Rainier, if it be scuba diving, it'd be anything along those lines, you know, going through an obstacle course race with these guys gives you another feeling that what you thought you lost, you're given back. Now, what is that feeling when you cross the finish line? I was there in Gunnison and you had a crowd of people waiting for you to cross that finish line. What does that feel like? What I love about it is that when you show up to these events uh, before you, like your first event as an OAW, you're an individual, you know, you're an honoree you're selected as an honoree. And then you're, you're, you're teamed up with your, your four individuals and, and you, and you do this event. So you show up as an individual, you, you create a team, but the best thing about it is you end as a team. And the feeling of what you do is it's exhilarating on exhilarating on so many levels that you'd never think was possible. I mean, obviously you're in your head, you're like, okay, this course I'm about to is going to kill me. I'm going to leave everything out there and you don't know what to expect. And you have some trials and tribulations along the way, but you overcome them and you figure out how to get through this, but you did it as a team. And I think that's the thing about that in the military is you're not an individual, you're a team, you're, you're a force, you're, 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 you're the Air Force, you're the Marines, you're the Navy, whatever. But what's cool about that is we all can put those things aside. The also cool thing about that is the person behind that mask may not even be a service member. They may be in law, law enforcement, a first responder. And what I love about that is we, we leave this country to go protect over there. They stay in this country to protect what's going on here. And we have a commonality with each other that we're able to do. And that's what I love about OAW is they bring two major forces together to make an impact in a way that nobody think would, would ever thought is possible. Do you have any events coming up in the future with OEW or otherwise that you're training for? I actually got a call a week ago from Adam Francis. We were talking about the Gunnison gut check. Last year, I did the half. I am signing off to do the full. I've asked I've asked and made a request to be to do the full course this year in my great chair with Operation Enduring Warrior. If I'm not there with OEW, I will be bringing my family, which is called the Wolf Pack, to come support one way or another to be a part of that. Oh, that is so fantastic. I'll see you there then, Chris. Yes, ma'am. What are your goals for the future? My goals for this future are to be able to get strong enough to walk my my daughters down down the aisle when, when, when that time comes. And what are you doing to prepare yourself for that? Uh, I, like I said, I'm looking and in, getting into the VA's uh, exoskeleton program, which is a, a, a electrical system gives you the ability to help move your legs more and strength build. I've been trying to just do as much as possible to, to build my lower body. My upper body is probably about 95% of what I was when I became injured. And my lower percent probably is about 45%. And I'm just trying to get stronger and stronger every, every, every way possible. For a minute, I want to switch gears 
and talk a little bit about America and where we are today. Do you have concern about where we are? Yes, ma'am. I think everybody in this country has concern of where we are, especially for all the things that we fought for, think, feel like they're being thrown away like a piece of trash without any consideration of what has happened to lead up to why we are where we are right now. And so what do you tell your children? I try to instill in my children that we have to learn from, from our history. We have to. Because if we don't, we're just going to repeat the same things over and over again and understanding that that I try to take a moment every year to, to, to if, if, if our family, when we go on trips, instead of it being just a family trip, it's about learning at the same time. You know, if it be we get a chance to go to a battlefield or if it be we get a chance to see the, uh, the Declaration of Independence and Independence Hall, I get a second chance to go in there and explain to them what it was like and at that moment, what was going on. I mean, even my daughter, I took her to the 9-11 Memorial after 10 years after, after the event, she got to go there with me and see what was going on. And I got a chance to tell her what was going on in my world. But the biggest thing about that is teaching her never to forget. Because the moment we forget is all this is going to happen over again. I absolutely love that. And I think more parents need to do that. I need to adopt that as well, Chris. That is fantastic. What do you want to leave with any veterans, any first responders, or anybody really that is suffering right now that feels less than maybe they're really struggling to know if they matter? I think the biggest thing about this is you're never alone. When, 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 when you know, like you may feel like you're alone and isolated and that's going on. And, and you may not be able to relate to my story, but there are things that, that we have a commonality with, and that's overcoming something. You know, like the biggest thing about this, the only person that can change you is you. I tell people all the time, like a doctor will tell you what's on a piece of paper, what you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be. But the only person that can change that is you. But at the same time, you're never going to be able to do this alone. There are organizations out there that can help you break through those barriers or or break through those heartaches that you're trying to get through. And, and, and finding that one thing in your life that could change your life is just by reaching out and knowing that there are organizations out there that will help you with without without any question. And, and knowing they'll give you back what you lost. And at the same time, it's about recreating the new you and understanding that you're going to have the values that you had as the old you, but you're going to redefine who you are and change who you're going to be in the future. And finally, Chris, what does America mean to you? America on one level means freedom. Having the ability to, like I said, protest for what you don't feel is right. But being able to get up in the morning and understanding that we can speak any language, believe in any belief that we have without restraint or feeling like we have to hide it. You have the ability to step out and scream who you love, who you care for, and what you do in this world makes a difference. And each one of us has an impact on in this world by what we do every day and what we fight for to keep that that same way. Thank you for sharing your American story with us, Chris. Thank you, ma'am, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.